This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 363rd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a popular young actress who has racked up a wide assortment of credits over her two decades in the business. From blockbusters like 2004's Mean Girls, 2008's Mamma Mia, and 2010's Dear John, to edgy indies like 2009's Chloe and 2013's Lovelace, to award-winning picks like 2012's Les Miserables and 2017's First Reformed, not to mention four seasons on the acclaimed HBO drama series Big Love. And she is now garnering the best reviews of her career and considerable Best Supporting Actress Oscar buzz for her portrayal of the actress Marion Davies opposite Gary Oldman's Herman Mankiewicz in David Fincher's Mank. Amanda Seyfried. Over the course of our conversation, the 35-year-old, speaking via Zoom from the farm in the Catskills where she lives with her husband, two kids, and many animals, talked about how she wound up in the business at such an early age and the sorts of pressures that she felt internally and that were imposed upon her to look a certain way as a young woman at the center of big studio movies, why she turned down the part in the 2014 Marvel film Guardians of the Galaxy that was ultimately played by Zoe Saldana, and instead confronted her stage fright head-on by making her theatrical debut off-Broadway in 2015's The Way We Get By, what the greatest challenges and rewards were of working for Fincher and playing Davies, who was sometimes dismissed as a pretty but lightweight actress, but actually had a lot to offer, not unlike the actress who plays her, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. So always begin on this podcast with just a few basics for the listeners. If you can share, uh, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. My father is a pharmacist and my mother was an occupational therapist in a psych rehab. So before acting entered the picture, I think out of very young, even obviously even younger age was modeling. So how does somebody from Allentown, Pennsylvania get into modeling in New York, I would assume? You know, I read a lot of Seventeen magazine, <laughs> YM. Uh, what, what was the, the youngest one? 
YM and there was another, oh gosh, I forget what it was. I modeled for it once <laughs> and it, it just, it was like really glamorous and it felt like it was, it was out of left field. It felt like it was special. It was ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, you're, you got a picture of like a 10 year old just wanting to be a supermodel, yeah, yeah. you know, wanting, wanting to be Cindy Crawford. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that it seemed very glamorous and fun and people made you look nice and you got to wear pretty clothes. But it was very simple. Was it a matter though of somebody kind of, you know, you hear these stories about somebody coming up to like a parent and their kid at the mall or something like, how did this even get started? Actually, uh, my second cousin worked at the local, one of the local modeling agencies in Allentown. And I, um, I was like, I want to go there. I want to learn. And of course you like, you buy these classes that are maybe a thousand dollars and they teach you how to walk on a catwalk and they take pictures of you. And <laughs> I remember going to the mall, going to my favorite store at the time, which was a, a store called limited Two mm -hmm, for kids mm -hmm. and buying uh, a silver biker jacket, a faux, a, a faux silver, a faux leather jacket. It was just bright, bright silver and buying it for a photo shoot. And then I ended up modeling for limited too, <laughs> which was like, so it was really exciting for me because it, we had one in our mall, in our local mall. So I'll go to school and you know, kids knew <laughs> that I was, it was, uh, it was really, it's really dreamy, but that, that's just, that's kind of, that's probably one of the reasons it felt like it's something that I could easily do because it was local. Mm -hmm. and my cousin was into it. So how then does that kind of give way to acting? Cause it seems like we're still, I think we're still in your like early teens when, I mean, even before teens, when the modeling was starting, but when did acting start and how? Acting started when I was probably three, my, my daughter's three and a half and she's absolutely going to be an actor <laughs> among many things, but I can, it's not, it's, I have an instinct like uh, she's born with it. I mean, she has two parents that are actors. It's just something that I, I had, I always wanted to perform. And I think modeling was, a, was just one of the directions I could go in order to perform in some way. And what ended up happening was I did some local theater. I played a party kid in Christmas Carol. And I, I played like a rat in wind in the willows and it's a, at a great theater. And then I auditioned for uh, Fiddler on the Roof at the Pennsylvania Youth Theater, which is actually pretty prestigious and totally didn't get get any part. And I knew, okay, that's also something that I really, that, that I'm passionate about, but that seems so much harder than modeling because you actually need some other type of skill. My modeling agency that I ended up connecting with in New York City, because New York was only really an hour and 45 minutes from Allentown on a bus. I ended up being thrown into audition rooms, truly like scary audition rooms for Warner Brothers pilots. I remember meeting Rebecca Scholl, who played Faye on Wings, which was my favorite show. She was in one of the waiting rooms and I was like, oh my God, I haven't made it. And I think it was like a vampire show. Of course, I didn't get the job, but I just found myself in those rooms and um, was pretty terrible for a while well so the first ones that actually seem to have come through would have been right in the late 
90s, I guess, graduating from like day player things on some soaps, Guiding Light and whatever, to more yeah. regular uh, appearances on soaps uh, as the world turns and all my children, all that. But and I see, you know, in that same period, there's a Law and Order guest spot. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, for young actors in New York, I I think uh, I know people who were in a similar boat. It's like, you know, that's, that's a nice solid uh, start, but it wasn't, you know, you weren't on the fast track to being a, a star at that point. So well, what was it like when you, you were still in regular school? Yeah. I have graduated when I was 17, like as a senior from Allen, Allen high school. Um, yeah, I was, I didn't really work that much. Luckily, I mean, I guess I would have rather have been working because I hated school, but I didn't work that much and it didn't get in my way. I was still doing honors classes with my friends and I was still playing tennis all four years. I was terrible at it, but I was still very committed to it. And it's kind of work kind of weaved its way in and out of my high school experience, except senior year. Of course, I I that was a half of the year. I, I think I made 80 days and my principal was like, of course you can graduate. I mean, if you do all your credits all the other years, it's like, you don't have that much to do anyway. So he was really supportive of that because I was actually like really working then. Yeah. I was doing a lot of days on all my children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've talked about in some other stuff I've read, just prepping for this, that, you know, school itself was not a good time. I guess you, you ironically, you dealt with some mean girls. <laughs> there was a, it was very divided in our school. Um, like the, you know, the, there's one, one school in that area and four different middle schools would channel into this school. And the girls from the other school were different than my friends and I were in a lot of ways, ballsier. Uh, and I, I didn't feel like I ever fit in even with my own group of friends. And I'm telling you that as someone who's still very close friends with three of them, Mm. like we're all really still very tight and I still didn't feel like I fit in. And I think that was just because there's just a hierarchy everywhere, I guess. And, um, yeah, I didn't like it. So I don't want it. I don't (laughs) want it for anybody. (laughs) So what happens? You graduate. And from high school and you, I read you were all set to go start at Fordham. Like what, so what occurred that stopped that from happening? That was, and it's the greatest story. And I, I can, it's one of my clearest memories. Um, I, I got in, I was rejected from NYU and I got into Fordham. The only two schools and I got into Fordham and it was really exciting, but I was still on the, on the, uh, on my children. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to take classes. I'll take my basic classes. Got fired or written off from all my children with my boyfriend at the time and somebody else. And everybody was like, what are we going to do? And I had audition for Mean Girls like within weeks of that firing. There's three weeks between the getting fired and knowing about Mean Girls and getting it Mean Girls. And during that time, the three weeks, I decided I had gotten it. Wait, what is it? I gotten in full time. I had to defer my getting into from full-time to part-time. I don't even know Mm -hmm. that lingo. I don't even, I don't know nothing about college. (laughs) And I 
I paid for like $3,000 for the English composition class, the first class you take 101, you know, and I got to, I, I flew out to LA right before the a week before the class started, flew out to LA audition for Regina with my mom. Um, my audition was Blake Lively, Lacey Chabert and Lindsay. Wow. Wow. Weird. I was playing Regina and I fly back. They're like, no, we want you to audition for Karen. I auditioned for Karen. And that screen test for Karen was the same day that I had my class at like 7 p.m. or something. And I go to Hordham and I'm late and I'm 15 minutes late. And there's nobody in the in the bays. Like I know, you know, those there's like you go up an escalator. This is Lincoln Center campus. And there's like three or four elevators. I don't know how many, but they're huge. And there's nobody there. And I'm on phone with my parents. And my dad's like, just go home. It's fine. I'm like, I don't know. What if I don't get this movie? And I'm not going to show up for my class. Like I can't, this is, this can't be, how am I supposed to, and my mom's like, just go upstairs. And I'm like, but I'm 15 minutes late for my first class. It's really embarrassing. Um, I got my money back. I left. I got my money back. And so uh, I guess the key question for people who are listening closely is how did you go from auditioning for Regina? So, which just ultimately was the Rachel McAdams played that part to winding up as Karen, who will, we will remind people was maybe the, I guess the ditziest of the group of the plastics. Um, somebody yes. who believes that her boobs can predict the weather and stuff like that. You know, how did, so how'd you wind up in that part? And was that, that must've been a huge deal. Your first movie, right? It was epic. I mean, it, who I would never have, I could never have dreamed of that. My expectations have been low my entire life for a good reason. I just don't want to be disappointed. I hate being disappointed. So I, uh, I never expected anything like this. And of course it just happened, but it, I think it was that I had auditioned for a lot of things at that point. Cause I was 17. And so from 15 to 17, when I was getting more active in on my children as well turns and I was uh, I turned 16 and I got as all my children and that year I had gotten a new manager and I was auditioning for a lot of stuff that I I realized I was really into like I really wanted to be an actor and um that was senior year and I was going in and out of auditions and I I guess I that was the summertime because we ended up shooting in September so it was probably around July I was reading the script and I was working with my manager and he's like you should work with a, a comedic director and I did and he gave me these genius ideas I was able to implement them I was able to like the two of us together made a really great audition and I went into the room and I and, they, and I kept going and I got another audition and the callback and then that ended up Mark Waters was like, Oh, she's good. She's funny. And they were like, well, she doesn't really fit into this Regina role because I screen tested in LA. And he was like, we got to find a way to get her in it, which is the biggest compliment in the world. And it, it, it turns out that I was way more effective as, as Karen. Very good. So that movie is obviously uh, something that a whole generation of people connect to and that puts you on the map to an extent, but then it wasn't like you were, you know, it, it was a while, but let's just say, so that's 2004 and then Mamma Mia, which I think is probably what really took things to a different level is four years later. In the meantime, let's just talk about what was going on because I assume that this is after Mean Girls is when you auditioned for another part that you didn't get the one that you went out for, but on Veronica Mars. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't ready for that though. To play it's, the, uh, not to play the title character yet. Right. Okay. Lily Kane. That was a better role. Yeah. Better suited for me. Yeah. And so that's happening around this time. Uh, that was 11 episodes over a period of between 2004, 2006. Also a couple of smaller 
not, I mean, movies that were, that were respected, but not, you know, blockbuster nine lives, one of the vignettes in there, alpha dog, but when along the line, did you actually sort of go all in about moving to LA, which was going to be an important step? Well, I moved, I was all in as soon as Mean Girls was over. Okay. I went back to New York. I was renting a ridiculously expensive apartment for what I could afford. I mean, it was a, it was this big. Um, <laughs> it was like the size of this little, uh, what am I in a gable right now? Um, it, uh, I was like, this is ridiculous. I should go to LA and capitalize on this moment. And so my boyfriend at the time who, from the, from all my children, we drove across the country from Wisconsin with his dad and stayed with another friend of ours in an Airbnb, which they didn't have at that point. Right. It was a Craigslist thing. Um, <laughs> a little tiny one bedroom in Venice Beach, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Mm-hmm. But that was when I was, I had just turned 18, just after sh- December, just after shooting, finishing Mean Girls, I turned 18 and January we flew out. I mean, we drove out January. We drove out from Wisconsin. And then that week, cause it was pilot season. I got big love and Veronica Mars. It was just, wow. and I will say, I have to say, I do not think those, I would have gotten, I got those roles based on mean girls or that I had just finished mean girls. Mm-hmm. No one had seen mean girls. We had just finished production. There was no chatter about it. I got them based on, my skill level at the time yeah. and my auditions and that felt felt really good because yeah. I knew that it wasn't, you know, cause sometimes you get movies based on other movies like, Oh, they're in that. Ooh, they'll be good. You know, this was separately. That was pretty, pretty cool yeah. to get two big TV projects within, you said a week of yeah. getting out there. So, week. so the Veronica Mars was just sort of coming in and out of the show, but with big love, this is four seasons, 44 episodes over six years. And just to share with people, this is the character of Sarah, the rebellious daughter of a polygamist father. Uh, just a kind of crazy thing that was a big thing for HBO. And I guess I wonder, you know, to for the first time to be playing a character, I think actually the only time over that long a period of time to be one character. Yeah, you were doing other things in, you know, during off seasons. But how did you like that? And, and, and that whole period with that show? I think I had a a love-hate relationship with that show. I loved going to work and being with my another family. I mean, it really did feel like, and I, I think you could ask any any one of us, did it feel like a family? And everybody would agree that it did because that's what happens when you do shows over that period of time. I was 18 when I started and I was uh, 24 when I started. And I had a Mamma Mia in between and, it was, it's amazing to be able to play a character who has an arc and goes through the motions of late teenagehood and early adulthood. And I think they created some awesome stories for me. And it was real, like, I really sharpened my teeth with that role for sure. And I got to feel confident in ways that I never had the time to. So that was great. And the downside is that it's, if, it's an ensemble and I wasn't one of the wives and I didn't have as much to do. So I would, I would have to go to work some days just to be in the background holding a kid. And I've always said that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, um, it could have, it could be frustrating at times. You know, I, I was really grateful that I was able to do a bunch of things at the same time, but I, I really like, I, I left 
for the last season because I was like, there's there's just and they were really kind about it. Or Grammy Bill was just a huge supporter. Are they all? I mean, Gene, it, it was a very important job for me. And I mean, well written, everything, quality, just just the whole thing was amazing. It's, but I was at it at an age where um, I felt a little stuck by the end. Sure, and and obviously, as you say, right in the middle of this is when the first major game changer happened, which was again, Mamma Mia. So just, you know, not that there are too many people who haven't seen the movie, but just setting it up. Sophie, this girl who's about to get married, wants to know who her real father is. This is your first leading role in a movie. Your mother is played by Meryl Streep. Just how did it even come about? Because again, it's not like, as you said, it didn't really, it's not like Mean Girls opened up a flood of opportunities or that you were a lead on these TV shows that you were doing. So how did that happen? Uh, well, I, I was singled out a little bit because it was a musical and I, I, I could sing. That was a major element, I think, to getting that role. And I also think they weren't really looking for anybody that was, that had star power. They weren't, they already had Meryl Streep. They already had ABBA. They already had the, the, the business behind it with, 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 the show, God, when did that show come out? I didn't even know about it. Oh, the, oh, Mamma Mia, the show. Yeah, I think it was, it was like a few years God, earlier was, in, in the early 2000s, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I had never seen it, and I saw this beautiful brunette, curly-haired girl with the wedding dress, and, and it, when I thought of Mamma Mia and auditioning for it, I'm like, well, I don't have, I don't have brown hair. But, <laughs> uh, I thought you. I thought I had to be Greek, and I'm like, I'm the farthest from Greek, but we'll see. And... And, uh, and then I ended up seeing it in Vegas and I was just, yeah, I'm total, total shooing. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it also just looks so fun. So I just think that was based on, it had to have been based a little bit on work ethic or something that, or, or being able to trust me in some way because Playtone also produced it. Mm-hmm. This is Tom Hanks. I know. Production company. It's Tom yeah. Hanks. Yeah. yeah. Tom Hanks, Gary Getzman, that was their baby. Big Love was their baby. And, and it had to have had something to do with it. They've never, ever mentioned it to me, but but I imagine it wasn't, you know, it was just a, a lot of elements go into stars a lot. I mean, stars have to align, you know. Yeah. So, and what, how uh, was it? Was it intimidating to know that you're going to not only, you know, you hadn't professionally done much singing up to that point And you I mean, yeah, you'd done some training when you were younger, but it's, it had been a few years. And so there's that element, yes. there's the Merrill element, which intimidates people who have been doing, you know, she worked, the idea of working with her is exciting, but scares the shit out of people who had been doing it a lot longer than you had been. So just what was the, the mindset during the shoot? Oh, well, when I finally got it, <laughs> uh, it was intimidating. Yeah. You're, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's intimidating. I mean, you watch her work and you realize why she's so good. And it's not just because she's present and skilled. It's because she kind of knows everybody else's job. And that was the first time it clicked for me. Oh, I need to really be paying attention to these people's jobs. I mean, big love. I was just going on set and I knew everybody by name and we socialized and laughed, but I didn't really give a shit about what they did. I just knew that we were all collectively making this show. And so when I was on set, I was, I was, I kind of watch her and 
watch her watch people and understand where she fit in with the whole mechanism. And it's really important to understand what your part is in the mechanism. Because if you're not, if you're not there, how can you expect somebody else to be there? Right. It's just, that's work ethic too. And professionalism, of course. And I was still intimidated. I mean, it's still intimidating sitting on her lap thinking, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I like, I am one of those people that I, I have a hard time being like very close physically to somebody when it's not my own mother or my own, my partner, mainly if it's not my partner mm-hmm. sitting on her lap, you know what I mean? It's just the, the things that were going through my mind when I'm supposed to be thinking about, you know, her getting my, you know, nails right when she's painting them and seeming sad and singing at the same time and listening to her at the same time and seeming like a daughter. I was like, am I too heavy for her? I wonder how uncomfortable she is. I hope my breath doesn't smell, you know, all that stuff that, you know, even for anybody I'd be, I'd be self conscious about, but it was Meryl. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately for her, I imagine she gets, you know, that she has that orb around her that people probably can't really, um, permeate. And that, that's sad because she's, she's much more grounded than, than that. You know, she's a normal, she's a human being. And yeah, when we had her on this podcast, we were talking about the fact that like, one of the things that she feels now is sort of part of her job is when she shows up, she has to de-escalate the whole Meryl awe with coworkers yes. because otherwise it's just, it's hovering over everything. So that was it's, interesting. Uh, it's, it, it's definitely, I mean, I, I get, I get a little bit of that, you know, just from being in the, you know, public figure, but her, her she's an, an entirely different playing field and it must be, it just must be hard to break that every time she walks into a new room. And I think, I just think it's just, it's just a bummer, but, but she does. I mean, she brings you down pretty quickly. When I first met her, actually, uh, it was during a, a fitting with Ann Roth and who actually lives very near Allentown. <laughs> and she said, Oh, we just love you in our house. Cause of mean girls. We just, Oh, cause she and her daughter, right. we just love you in our house. And I was like, Oh, that's how she does it. Right. I feel good now. Yeah. <laughs> I f- it's just like, I feel seen. And, right. and, and I think it's a kind way to like a kind thing to do. Yeah. Cause you know, she knew I was intimidated. Of course. Of course. I mean, it would be weird if you weren't. So, um, who, so this movie with, you know, all the buildup and the publicity and, you know, for the first time you're probably seeing yourself in on giant billboards and all of that stuff. So when it comes out and does really well and everybody's seeing it and, and that continues, you know, it's not like that lets up, it's then it's on airplanes then it's, it's everywhere. Um, how did your day-to-day life change because of that movie? More people stopping me on the street. Um, more press, more opportunities, more parties, you know, it's just more of the Hollywood thing. Cause I lived in Hollywood and I definitely got more opportunities in movies. People knew who I was and, you know, I, I got a big beauty campaign, a, a Japanese beauty campaign. It, I definitely started being more financially secure I mean, I was always kind of on my own. Like I, I moved to, I got my first apartment right when I got all my children when I was late 16. 
And so I've been always been on my own. I love living alone. And that just made me feel like I was really starting to get some kind of, um, I was starting to feel like a true adult. Yeah. Even though my, my mom still is with me, but <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was, there was just a, lo- a lot of, uh, just a lot more responsibility. Just, it was, uh, well, let's everything changed. Let's talk about the roles that I believe were not already in the works before that. I, I would think these started to come out of it. So both in, there's two in 2009 that were pretty notable. Jennifer's body written by Diablo Cody coming off of Juno. You're the, nerdy best friend turned assassin. Uh, there's that, that was an interesting, <laughs> interesting movie there. But then the other one, which I don't know that a ton of people saw it, but I remember this is 2009. I remember exactly being at the covering the Toronto film festival, being at the premiere and there's a movie called Chloe for Adam McGuire, where basically there's a call girl who ends up between Liam Neeson and Julianne Moore's characters who are married, but suspicious of each other. And this call girl is played by you who up to that point, I mean, I think maybe this was the purpose of taking the role, but like, wait, this is the girl from Mean Girls and Mamma Mia, who suddenly this is like a pretty sexy, edgy role that we have not seen her do before. So let's, you know, I guess really in a sense, the first adult, that you're playing in a movie, how did we end up there? So it's like what you said, I, diversity is really key when you're an actor and you're trying to get lost in your roles. It's, it's, it's that, it's, it was that simple to me. And, and it's also about the challenge of getting out of your comfort zone in terms of the content and the, the emotional challenges as an actor playing people that you don't relate to as well. And all of that, it was just a, it was just a lot of, it was just, a, it was just a, a departure. That was my first major departure from, I think the industry's perspective or people that did know me by that point. And, and for me personally. So that was, that was why. Yeah. And he, Adam Agoyan is, Oh, God, it was the first time I ever felt like I was a real collaborator, that I was a peer. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I felt like I was on a level playing field with these incredibly talented people like Julianne and and, and Adam. Just It was just... Uh, well, and we should say also, I think that, correct me if this is wrong, but so Jennifer's body, I think, had been produced by Jason Reitman. And was he the one that sort of urged you to go do Chloe? Was there something there? No, it was uh, his dad who produced Chloe. Oh, so, okay. So Jason produced Jennifer's body. Ivan produced Chloe. And did, did Jason like suggest you to Ivan or had it, was there something with that? I don't remember. I might've even shot Jennifer's body after Chloe. I actually don't know. I don't recall any conversation about what happened between, was it Ivan who, did I? I think Ivan produced Chloe. Was something? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a Canadian. It yeah, it's Ivan. a Canadian yeah. movie with yeah. God, I love those guys. <laughs> and they've definitely been had a lot of a uh, good track record of giving young actresses a good platform. I oh mean, yeah. So yeah. The also, I think one of the crazier things to do with Chloe, and not to harp on this, but I remember now, wasn't it like towards the end of the shooting that this terrible tragedy happened with Liam's wife. And then he comes back 
like right yeah, after for a week and finished the movie right after he lost his life. It's crazy. But he, I guess sometimes yeah, that I, helps you. Yeah. I think when you're, I can, the only sense I can make of it, which I think is, is it, it must, I mean, God, I don't even know what that's like, but it's going back into a place where they weren't present every day, all the time. It's going, it's, it's just doing something to distract. And he did, he showed up and finished the job and it was a, it was a week later and yeah, God, that man. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. So then after this, is a period of a few movies I want to ask you about because it seems like some of the things you've said in hindsight make it like, not that you regret having done these movies, but that you are maybe somewhat concerned that these might've changed people's perception of the sort of actress you were or wanted to be or whatever going forward. So these were some fairly big studio movies. There's Dear John in 2010, which is from one of these from Nicholas Sparks novel, uh, He'd also, you know, inspired The Notebook. You've got Letters to Juliet. You've got Red Riding Hood and In Time, all within a period of two years, coming out within a period of two years. Now, some of these were very successful. I mean, Dear John, after two months of Avatar being at number one at the box office, this is the movie that knocked that out of there. Red Riding Hood, I, sh I should ask you in a moment, because that was, I guess, your first time dealing with Gary Oldman, who was now uh, almost 10 years later, obviously, with Mank. But just like, was that a time in your career where you were you or somebody around you was saying like, look, if you, if you get these opportunities, you're in a big studio movie, you got to go down that path. Why not? It doesn't seem like that's where you're most at home. So I don't know. I just, am curious. That's the funny thing. Um, everything's deliberate for different reasons. And so the bread riding hood is basically this is how it was brought to me. I remember I was at baggage claim at the airport. Leonardo DiCaprio is producing it. Uh, Catherine Hardwick is directing it. Big, huge Warner Brothers movie. Lead role. Yeah, why not? Don't have to audition for it. Yeah, why not? Here you go. To Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. You, you, you had me at Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> That's why I did that movie. Letters to Juliet. Oh my God, that was such an experience. So Gary Winnick... I had met and fell in love with. She just was so, was such a personality and clearly very passionate. That was my first big paycheck, like real paycheck. And which is funny because you think about all those movies that I'd done before. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can imagine being a young woman in Hollywood. Yeah, right. There right. were no paychecks, uh, yeah. it, which is still, well, yeah. And so that's another, was another great thing. And it was um, being produced by a lot of cool people. And I got to go to Italy. Mm -hmm. which like, duh. Yeah, these are all good duh. reasons. Yeah. Vanessa Redgrave. Right. Yeah. And that was scary because that was the first, that was the first time it was me. Mm -hmm. That was me. Like I was the first number one on the call sheet. And that was terrifying. So when that movie was about to come out, I was like, oh my God, box office really does mean so much. <laughs> But before that was Dear John, and I wanted to be part of Dear John because The Notebook was such a huge thing for Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, mm -hmm. and they, it was a sweeping romance, and I love sweeping mm -hmm. romances. Mm -hmm. So that was just and there's I worse, worse things than hard. having to be in a in a love story with Channing Tatum, I would think. Yeah. Oh but. my God. And it couldn't have been more perfect. Mm -hmm. He was so awesome. Lost a Hallstrom. Like it was just a perfect. I had audition a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. So that was a big get for me. Right. And it turned out it did great. Like you said, it knocked off Avatar. And that was my first experience. I remember 
being a, like more a part of such a big box office win mm-hmm. because with with Mamma Mia, I didn't really understand the box office so well. Mm-hmm. But with Dear John, I knew what we wanted, right? And we surpassed what we wanted, which is why streaming is so wonderful yeah. <laughs> because that headache. Yeah, you don't have to think about that it. you. You, it weighs so much on you. You're like, I had a good experience. I loved working with these people. I would do it again in a heartbeat. I think it turned out pretty good. And, but really the, you know, how you're going to rank it, how you're going to measure the quality of it is in how many people go see it. That's bullshit. But that's how it is. Yeah. So I want to note, like, all right, you're doing with Dear John. Again, you're up against, you're, you're opposite Channing Tatum. You're at that time, I think you said you had a, like a, a beauty campaign in Japan. You're on most beautiful lists and all of that kind of thing. And yet, despite all of this, um, here's a quote from around that time that I came upon here from you. Quote, I worried on the set of Dear John that they wouldn't think I looked like they wanted me to look. That's always my fear. I hope they weren't mad at me. Close quote. What, what's that about? That's so sad. Well, I was given a trainer. <laughs> And, um, the trainer put me on a, a specific diet. Uh, I haven't thought about this in a while. Um, and that's not okay. But listen, I think they, uh, I told myself, I don't know what it was. I don't know what they were thinking, but it made me feel really good. And it was really fun and it was free. And the food was actually fantastic. And it came to my house. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Harley, the trainer, was awesome. I had so much fun. But that put extra pressure like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in a bikini. And I don't do bikinis. I don't I don't I do one pieces. I don't do bikinis. I don't like my stomach. I've never liked my stomach. Well, now I just don't give a shit. But like I'm 35. <laughs> right. But I didn't like my, I didn't want anybody to see my stomach. I, I was always a little I have a short torso. I have a thing about my belly. I did. And it was never going to be skinny enough for me. And I was never going to try it hard enough because I just, because I, I'm help, whatever. And I, yeah, I was afraid that I was not fit enough for that movie because I never did the diet fully. But now were you having these concerns about any of this prior to them saying, Hey, you know, was it like, hey, you need a trainer or, hey, you should have a trainer? Or was this the only reason I'm bringing this up at all is just that I think that it's maybe illustrative of what some of the pressures are for a young actress in Hollywood. And and the fact that you at a time when the vast majority of people are out in the world already thought you looked great and had no issues. I just was wondering, is this coming from yourself or from other people? Myself. And it was made made worse it made more challenging by other people saying you're gonna we need you to have this trainer we need you to do his diet and i was like uh okay you know first questioning it but then thinking free workouts and it was hard to keep you know to only eat what i was sent you know of course i that's just i will never be able to do that and that's okay because i'm you know, I've, I've been, anyway, it's, it, yes, I'm always, I think I'm always going to struggle with that slightly. I'm glad I have a really good handle on it. I'm, I need to be healthy for, for myself and for my kids, but that was not just then. That was all the time I came into 
high school needing to feeling like I needed to do more ab workouts. And the thing is, I was too lazy to actually do it. So I just gave myself a hard time for not doing it. And I will tell you, I was 10 pounds heavier until I was in my mid twenties because of all the free food on set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, and big love, you see me in big love. Just, and that's, that was always help. That was healthy, mm-hmm. but I didn't see that as healthy. I was like, I gotta be, I look like, I gotta look like everybody else. And I knew a lot of girls at that time, at that age that were calling me up, not to tell me this, but, but also saying, you know, they want me to go on a diet or they, you know, mm-hmm. they don't think I, they need, they think I need to lose 10 pounds. And that was the thing. Yeah. I hope it's not anymore, but I, who knows? It it can't be anymore. Yeah. I think it's, I think there are now finally rules against yeah. it, but I'm sure there always is body shaming. And I think people want the, 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 the lead romantic love interest to, I don't know what they want to have a six pack and some biceps. I mean, that what <laughs> I'm, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, you know, so after that, period of, you know, just having, you know, again, and I, I get also, if you're going to be on a billboard and all that, it's going to, I think it would screw with anybody's mind. But so those are a few years, uh, a couple years in a row of big studio stuff. Then there's the movie for Tom Hooper coming off of the King's speech, winning all the Oscars, a bunch of Oscars, Les Mis, where of course you're getting to sing again. This is uh, playing cassette. But, you know, I, yeah, you've, you'd sung in Mamma Mia, you'd sung before that. Here you are going to be doing it in super close up live alongside people like Hugh Jackman. So is this now more pressure or is that exciting? Or how did you think about that going into it? Oh, I was like, that was, that was really stressful. Um, I, going into it, I will, I just have to preface this by saying that I auditioned six times for it. Oh my God. Wow. And I was told no right off the bat by the casting director. No, I wasn't told that. My agent was told that. And I said, that's you. I (laughs) trust me. I am Cosette. I can do this. And luckily I, I got it. And getting on that set was, oh my God, no matter how much rehearsal we had, I was never ready. And I look back, I can't even watch it because I sound so shrilly and weak and that was coming off of only having at that point six months I started I I went back into actually fully training with a voice coach in August of 2011 and we started shooting I think the beginning of 2012 and I just it wasn't enough time Uh, I had a, a voice coach on set Every time we'd have to do it live, I would just freak out. And I, I just, I wish I could go back and redo all the singing. I'm surprised to hear you say that because people, again, I think this might be more in your own head because people enjoyed it and they didn't, I didn't hear any specific uh, dumping on you about your voice. So you're saying you were not happy with how you came. Thank God. (laughs) I would, I honestly, I, I thought the movie was so beautiful and everybody was so wonderful in it. And I liked my performance, but as soon as I opened my mouth to sing, I, I, it's like the, it's like my, it's like my, my vocal cords were just cowering inside. They're like, Oh, is it me? Oh, I, 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 and then I would just tense up and I, I realized now it's been what over, it's been nine years, over nine years. I can I can confidently say that I am ready to play Cosette 
in Lamez. <laughs> if I were to have the opportunity again. Well, that's uh, listen. I that would be cool to see the a reunion. <laughs> um, it would be. Okay, so I remember hearing about and then going to see this movie. I was very skeptical about about Linda Lovelace, who was best known <laughs> as the star of Deep Throat and had a very complicated life and Oscar winning directors of documentaries, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. Uh, we're behind it. I didn't see it at Sundance where it premiered, but then it starts rolling out. And I, again, really skeptically went in to see it. And I thought it was one of the best things you've done. And I think a lot of other people did as well. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I was, a, that was the first time I'd ever stepped in the shoes of somebody real and another very deliberate choice. I think there was there were two different scripts flying around about Linda Lovelace, and this is the one that got made first. And I, I did I did as much work as I could on figuring out who this woman was, and then I also knew that I was, you know, trying to show a side of her that people didn't really know, and that gave me a little bit of freedom. And we were in touch with her family, and so I felt very supported. But it was that was. It was hard. God, it's so hard because you just need to find an essence there that works for the story. And if you don't, just what's the point? Okay. So when Lovelace came out, there's an article that was written that I, I read prepping for this where you said, quote, this film is really, I feel the beginning of something else for me, close quote. What were you, you know, what, what were you hoping would be the next phase that it was going to open up? I think... I, I just wanted some more roles like that. I think I just wanted to explore other parts of myself and, you know, everything's a little cathartic, especially a role like that. And I, I thought maybe this would, it, within the industry, I don't know, help see people trust that I could do other things yeah. because you you don't you can't control who sees these things or who doesn't like who knows what of your career you know i don't i didn't ex ever expect anybody to know any great directors that i i um i'm enamored by to know who i was so these roles are always i do it for the experience i deliberately choose to do things that i won't what i don't think i would re ever regret and things that will challenge me and things that are different from, from other things that I've done. And, and, and then you, and then you hope that when it comes out, if it's good and, and if my performance is good, then people trust me to do, to have, you know, to give me other opportunities. That's always the hope. Yeah. Well, never the ex expectation. And it's tough because it's the number of people that show up is not always at all related to the quality of the movie as I mean, another example, I think one of the funniest movies I remember, and I actually think it's better than Marriage Story and some of his movies that get more attention, but Noah Baumbach with While We're Young, I laughed my ass <laughs> off at that. I mean, I still think about the scene where, so just to set it up for listeners, I mean, this is the year after Lovelace. It's you and Adam Driver as couple, a couple from one generation, and then Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts, and both are sort of, in a sense, competing with, the other and there's a the the hip-hop <laughs> class where naomi goes to try <laughs> she thinks she's going to like some workout class i think and then you guys uh you know she finds it herself in the middle of a hip-hop class there there's some funny very funny stuff there and yet i don't know that it got 
much got widely seen unfortunately it it didn't it was um it was it went to toronto the same year as god something else i think that i did or maybe that was just that that was just that one maybe oh yeah it was just that movie that year but yeah it was funny it's it's funny how things hit and don't hit but the experience of making it is always you know you always have something to go back to yeah it was hilarious i mean that that was a He's amazing, Noah. Like he, he knows what he's doing. He make he's very, he's very smart, <laughs> and dry, and has makes a great points. Yeah, and uh, I love watching his movies. So, I think it would have been right around that time that you sort of acted on maybe something you've been feeling for a while, but hadn't done, which was essentially like getting the hell out of the center of things, whether that's LA or New York, what was the, and also passing on some things that, that on paper, you know, you probably supposed to do, right. I, the one that has come up is guardians of the galaxy. For instance, somebody comes and offers you a Marvel movie. Theoretically, you're supposed to do that. It's a big payday. It can only be good. But what happened that made you say, you know, what? I've got to kind of put a, hit the brakes a little bit and just resituate myself a little bit. It was never to hit the brakes. I never wanted to slow down or hit the brakes. I, even when I had kids, I accidentally had, you know, I, I wasn't, that was never a plan. It was always a plan to have kids. Of course I didn't plan it then in both instances. So it was never a deliberate, like I, I need to slow down or stop. It was just that I was afraid there was two things. I was afraid of, oh my God, I remember I was sitting on my agent's couch because my agent is also a very good friend of mine. I've been with her since I was 16. I was sitting on her couch and on the phone with the other agent because the offer had just come in and I had just met with James Gunn. And I, I didn't want to be a part of the first Marvel movie that bombed. <laughs> That's something, yeah. Because I said who wants to see a movie about a talking tree and a raccoon, <laughs> which is clearly, I was very wrong. And that was all based, not that the script, the script was great. It was all based in not wanting to be that guy. Because if you are the star of a giant movie like that and it bombs, you're, Hollywood does not forgive you. It, I've seen, I've seen that people make, it, I've, I, I've seen that happen to people and it was a giant, giant fear. And I was, and I thought, is it worth it? And then the other thing is I knew that, that it was, I, I knew the people that who were blue had a lot of, they were sitting in makeup more than they were actually on set. And there was all green screens. And I thought, I don't want to sit. I don't want to be green for six months. I don't want to have to go to work yeah. and yeah. get green and then have a few hours to, do my job and then get ungreen to just go back to work and get green again. I've done prosthetics before. It's not fun. Yeah. And so I made a good choice for myself in my, yeah. for my life. <laughs> but was this part of a larger thing though? Because isn't this around the same time that you moved to the Bundaks? Oh yeah. Right? I, I think was that 2013? I did buy a place in 2013, but that, but I always knew I was going to be wandering the earth working. I always knew that I that I just needed a home base and I needed a place where I knew that I could thrive 
when I wasn't working and feel safe and be close to the city. So that that was and, that choice. I yeah. always wanted to be up, up upstate. I mean, upstate. Yeah. It always seems so glamorous. Well, the other thing that in normal times is very associated with New York is theater, which is something you had not done at all, I believe, until 2015 when I went and saw at Second Stage, I think it was only 70 minutes, a show called The Way We Get By, Neil LeBute. And let's just remind folks, this starred or, or let them know because uh, it's not a huge house. I mean, it's a small theater and it was box theater, and but really great. It was Thomas Sadowski, who actually is from, I've talked to him about this. I'm from Woodbridge, Connecticut, a little tiny dinky place, which is adjacent to Bethany, Connecticut, where I believe he's from and uh, theater actor. Um, and then yourself, did you guys know each other even before that? Or was that where this, I think we're now five years one marriage and two children later, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I did not know who he was. I had not seen him on the stage. You know, doing a play was always something I wanted to do because I, I understood it to be the biggest challenge for an actor. And the biggest, it, it gave you the most in return. And and then you get to just walk away from it. And I, I, I always wanted to, to be on stage and, 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 ex, and experience that. And um, I don't know, I don't know if I could ever do it again. God, that was terrifying. But I did have nights of just pure bliss where I just felt like I was flying. And that was, I'm so glad I, that was my first play because I was going to do a different play. I, I, um, I almost played um, Sylvia. Is it Sylvia? The dog? Yeah. Yeah. I almost played Sylvia. And then, uh, um, that was a weird, weird thing because <laughs> there was Julie White and, and myself and, um, Bradley Whitford. We mm -hmm. did the reading and we were going to do the play and then mm, happened to Bradley and me, but that's, uh, that's just weird, um, politics and business, I guess. But yeah. that was going to be my first like show and it was going to be on Broadway. And I was so excited about it. Cause I was like, I love dogs. I'm playing a dog. This is the funniest play ever. <laughs> and then when that didn't work out, I was like, oh God, I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm so heartbroken that this is, that just, this just all of a sudden it, it fell into my lap and then just, it was took away, taken away from me. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta get on stage. And then there was another show that was a possibility. And then this came along and it was a two person play. And I don't know why I did that. It was like jumping to the deep end first. And I, I, I think thankfully I did. I, I yeah. would, would we have met each other? I'm sure this was definitely amazing because we connected in such an amazing way. And I felt so safe with him on stage, even when I was having panic attacks. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask is like, you know, you're talking about being excited to do theater, but at the same time, like a lot of people don't realize a lot of actors have this, but you, why were you wanting to do that to yourself when you know that you have to some degree panic attacks or stage fright or whatever you want to call it? I, I thought that I would be all right. I really did believe when we were in rehearsal, I was finding so much. I was feeling so alive and so challenged and really very, very present. And, and just my, my almost, I don't know how to say it. My spirit was calm. I know that sounds very, could sound kind of weird, but I felt like that's where I needed to be. And that was the play I needed to be doing with the people I was doing it with. And, and when I first, when we had our first, um, dress rehearsal and 
you know, the, the nights after that, I don't know what they're all called, but, uh, I felt like this is like flying. This is the first I've ever felt this. I don't even know the word. It was magical. I was creating this whole world for people and I felt the energy of the audience. And there's just, there's something there that you can't recreate anywhere else. And everybody who's, who's been on stage knows the feeling and it is addictive. And this is, you get the bug and it is so not like film at all because you're, you're in it and you can't get out of it. And so you, you spin, you spin it around until it's done. And then all of a sudden you've given yourself and these people, this, this, you've taken them on this whole journey. It's so amazing. I'll never do it again. <laughs> but through halfway through the halfway through, I, I had a moment of feeling really dizzy and panicky and it killed the rest of the run. It just killed it for me. And there's nothing you can really do about it, right? No, I, you know, I, I never faltered. I, I stayed on stage and we got through it every night. But from that moment, I, my body was telling me, no, it's going to happen again. My, my head was telling me it's going to happen again. My body's like, just like, you know, just, just trust. And some nights I, it didn't happen. And, but it was always on my mind and it totally ruined the experience for me. What does it feel like? It's like just having a weight on your chest or, or what is it? It's fight or flight. For me, fight or flight is, um, is I get really dizzy. The lights get really bright. I, I, I'm short of breath and I feel like I, I have to just run. Like my whole body goes cold. It feels like I'm about to faint, but much worse because I'm not actually going to faint. And my, my body still didn't at that point understand what I needed to do. And so I would just plant my feet and keep saying the lines and he'd see it every night. We'd, we'd leave the stage and we'd go up the stairs to the dressing rooms. He's like, are you all right? So in a way, I guess you probably were able to bond over that. I mean, it's Oh my God. Actually, I felt so safe with yeah. him. It was, it's, yeah. I mean, that's, it's uh theater's much more intimate than, than anything else for, for an actor. And I felt like I, I, I'd known him my whole life and I felt like he understood who I was. He saw me. He saw everything that I was going through. He, you know, he figuratively held my hand through it and it created the foundation for like oh, an incredible relationship, whether it was a friendship at that point. Cause things, I mean, there was no way that was ever going to happen at that point uh, for either of us. But, but there was a, there was that spark, like, what what if on an in another yeah. in a parallel life but then we got to do it in this life which is really special and we got to do another we got to do a movie together that's great well these last few years have been pretty interesting because i know on a personal level you've been busy you know with your starting a family and all of that then in the meantime you know it's sort of like it feels like like um what do they call it? like military airstrikes where you pop in it's not a necessarily a huge part or something but it's gone over great so like first reform paul schrader one of the best reviewed movies of 2017 i don't know that you have a ton of screen time in there but it was people were very impressed it's there's the scene just to remind people you're a pregnant parishioner with a suicidal husband and ethan hawks the priest that's kind of gets involved with this um then there's a few episodes of twin peaks which has a cult following of its own. Um, another Mamma Mia in 2018. Um, and all of this leading up to Mank, where 
uh, you know, we'll get into this more in the intro, but just to just to remind folks, this is you playing Marion Davies, the actress comedian who lived with William Randolph Hearst at his castle, San Simeon. Here it's David Fincher. And the thing I really like, I, I'm obsessed with film history. So to me, I was waiting to catch cheats where, you know, they're, it's not accurate or whatever. But I think it's so, it's one of the most faithful to history movies about the movies I've ever seen. And it's right down to, you know, she was really the first person with a giant movie star trailer that would follow her as she went from studio to studio. Stuff that you guys really capture in the movie where I don't know if it would make a difference to most people if it wasn't even in there, but it's means something to people that really love film history because they get that this is, this is taking it seriously. So how did this happen in the first place where you find out that David Fincher knew who you were, wanted to consider you for this? What, what was the beginning of it all? I was at, I was at Penn station getting the train back up here. I don't remember what I was doing. What was I doing? Oh, uh, I was working on a, a movie that I produced, tiny, tiny movie that we, you know, I put blood, sweat and tears into. And I think I was, we were in rehearsals and I was going back up to home. I was going home and my agent, Abby, calls me and says, there's Fincher's doing a movie called Mank about Herman Mankiewicz. And I was like, okay, that's great. <laughs> and, you know, they're asking your availability. There's a, there's a chance that, you know, he would want you to, to be in it. And I was like, Oh, okay. I, I he, he knows me. Like, are, are you sure it's him, him and not just the casting director? And she's like, no, no I was I'm speaking to the casting director and yes, he's mentioned you. And I cried. It was a very teary train ride back. Why do you, why do you think you reacted that way? Because it seemed like a, the possibility came out of nowhere and it couldn't have been more, I couldn't have felt more passion for something I didn't know anything about because it was him. And because, you know, again, no expectations, but you hear that and you can't help but go into that world and think, what would that mean for me? That would mean that somebody I, I, I truly have looked, looked up to as a master for so long would allow me to enter his world and and I, I for it as an actor as a human being I was just as a as an adult living in the world to feel like I'm trusted enough to be even considered for something like this was a big deal and it yeah. was very exciting so at that point in time how familiar were you with the name Herman Mackwitz the name Marion Davies, even Citizen Kane. A lot of, there's no, I mean, if you're not somebody who grew up like obsessed with movies, maybe it's just a name. What, what was your, what was your familiarity with all this at that point? I, I'd heard of Marion. I could picture her when she mentioned the, the character. I have seen Citizen Kane when I was early twenties, mm -hmm. getting into films, educating myself. Yeah. yeah. That was it. I didn't know who Herman Mankiewicz was. I knew that yeah. Mankiewicz was a name that I, I, I knew because Josh Mankiewicz is one of the yeah. uh, Dateline makers. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> we watched <laughs> all of the Datelines in this household. There's not a one we have not seen. Right. right. And so I uh, started, you know, 
getting on my my tiny computer and doing some research and uh yeah I, there's not I I didn't I didn't do much I just got the call and and so that the part's yours or you have to come in and meet David or what was the process we had a zoom call it was the first time I used zoom because I didn't know mm -hmm. I didn't know about zoom so I had to download it first on my computer and then <laughs> I called I called in on an, a night that I'd worked many many hours Mm -hmm. And I had read the script that day between sh shots and and most of during my lunch break. I'm a slow reader. It was a lot yeah, to do yeah. in one day. But I, and I'm playing a suicidal mother in postpartum. It was heavy stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I talked to him at from like 10 at night to like 11.15 by the time we got off the phone. And he spoke. He just talked to me about it. And we had a finally after 45 minutes or whatever of him explaining how he was going to shoot it and what it was going to be and what it meant to him and all that. We finally started talking about the script and how I felt. He was asking me questions about how I felt about certain scenes. And I got to tell him how I felt because I felt so like I had things that right. I wanted to right. say. And he gave me the, the opportunity and we had a back and forth about it. And I felt like he heard me and we talked about Marion and what he wanted from Marion. And I guess by the end of that conversation, I was, I was in, cause then we were talking about schedule and the schedule was like, I didn't know if I was going to be able to actually pull it off because I had to get another movie that I was doing after that. To, But the point was, I wasn't supposed to be working at all. I was actually going to try to take time off because my sister was having a baby. And I was going to go okay. out to L.A. and I was going to be her doula. And <laughs> I was going to help them over Christmas in L.A. And I was going to be there with my daughter, my mom, everybody. And I, after the, my passion project that I was like pouring everything into, I was like, I'm going to be done. And I ended up getting into this other movie, Things Heard and Seen, because it was just too, really too good to pass up because they were shooting up here mm -hmm. in Pine Plains mm -hmm. and Kingston. So it was my neck of the woods and it was so fun. And then, then Mank happened. I was like, God, I can't believe this. I'm, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I honestly still don't know how I did it because I was getting on midnight flights and landing at 6am and going for 8am rehearsals and flying back and then coming back in at 5am on Mondays. It was horrible, but the best thing ever, because I got to be in Mank, I guess. Yeah. Well, question about Marion Davies. And this is something that, you know, I want to be careful how I say this because I want to, I, I don't want it to come up to be in, misinterpreted in any way, but I wonder if you felt any kinship with Marion, who was always described, you know, this is this pretty young actress who's good to have in the business and all of that, but was basically underestimated for a lot of her career. Even after it wasn't, it didn't help that they in Citizen Kane basically had the person playing her be a drunk loony. But even apart from that, I don't think she ever really got the opportunity or the respect that she wanted and probably deserved. So I wonder if for you, as if there was any relationship to that, and then the, the fact that that is coming as a result of playing her, you know, the more, the, the more respect and, and accolades and all that, just what am I, am I imagining something here? Or is there anything to that? I, it is kind of amazing that, well, first, it's kind of amazing that Marion was 
was definitely underestimated and, and, and but just not as as respected, I think, as she would have been today. I mean, she did a lot of movies. From the movies that I saw, she was effervescent. She was she was the girl you wanted to know more about. And she was hilarious. And she's kind of reminded me in in some ways of, of Karen in that she, you know I don't the way she negotiated her way through scenes it just seemed like you have to be smart in order to play somebody like that and you could see her wheels turning and you always felt like she was really there she she was I I think she was a fantastic actress actually and I think a lot of people do too and I think they they do put you know after she's gone of course I don't know I think it's it was her relationship with with Hearst and how he kind of wanted a handle on her career and wanted her to do certain things that she didn't want to do and and she ended up kind of just petering out in a way and I think that's um that doesn't happen anymore I mean not as much but also and I and I don't know how many regrets she had because I do believe she was very loyal and did really love this man but I think she had so much more to give and so much she just could have worked up until you know the end probably hopefully and yeah I mean do I feel like we don't we're not we don't have too many parallels. I think the thing that I related to most about Marion and in these scenes in Mank was, was I saw the, the similar rapport that Gary and I have in these scenes. And I thought, this is going to be, this is aces. I, I get her. I really get her. She's really funny. She can hang out with anybody. She can make anybody feel comfortable. And she's brutally honest. Like I am, I cannot tell a lie. I am, I am how I am. And I can try not to curse as much as I do, which I'm trying to do. But I, but it's, she's, this, she's very similar in that, in that way. And then she doesn't, I mean, how much credit does she deserve? I don't know more than she got. I don't think I am deserving of more credit than I'm getting. I think it's happening as it like I'm I'm getting quote unquote credit. I'm getting like you know discussion surrounding my performance, which is an amazing thing. It's thrilling. I've never expected it. I've never been sad that it wasn't happening, and I've always been grateful that I've been mentioned. Like Paul Schrader, like you said, the Paul Schrader movie. Like there was, I was getting some honorable mentions in that, like someone else said, and I think that's. Beautiful. I love the fact that I got to experience that. Well, David Fincher did an interview recently where he was talking about the fact that, you know, obviously this movie is not just about that time period, but he wanted it to feel like it was made in the same time period as Citizen Kane, which meant not just black and white cinematography, but the acting style. This is pre-Brando, pre-method acting, pre, you know, wearing your emotions on your sleeve and, you know, sort of what we know with all of that. So it's different. It's very stylized and it, and it feels exactly right for what he was trying to do. But I wonder, that's got to be an adjustment for you to just essentially, like the way David's talking about it is just, he said, quote, just go spit it out. Like as far, close quote, as far as the, what he wanted you guys to do with the lines. It's not, you know, pauses and, you know, stuff that is more modern style of acting. But again, that's what My was, style. It's my style of acting. <laughs> I think about things. My cadence is always really hard to reenact in ADR. Always. Yeah. I'm like, I actually thought I was way too modern to to play Marion. That was 
Sorry to cut you off, but that was literally, that was like my biggest fear is that I wasn't going to fit into this world. And so how do you make that work? What what was the, is it just literally slowing down or not, or just saying the line? Like, what is the, what was it that you guys were doing there? Oh God, we knew our lines way too well. So (laughs) that's really important to know your lines that well is that's going to take you very far, I think, especially if, if he wants you to spit it out. I wasn't conscious of trying to imitate the, you know, because to me, when I first, when I first started digesting that I was going to be in this movie, I really didn't think I was capable of fitting in to this era. And it's because I, I, what I pictured was people talking like this and, you know, it's uh, like, you know, the way Jimmy Stewart talks, I, yeah. I, there, there is an affectation that I, I see it as an affectation that I was like, I, I don't know how that's not going to be natural for me. I, I've been skating through my career trying to be as natural as possible, just as realistic as possible, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. completely <laughs> <laughs> match the character. I, it just try to find the the honesty in everything, right? So when you're playing different people, other people in different eras. Like I, that's like, that's a giant mountain for me. And I definitely wanted to climb it. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. And by the time we were on set, I'm telling you, I had the accent, the mild Brooklyn accent, which is something that comes naturally to me because I've done it before. Mm-hmm. And I do it mildly because if I, if I flub a little bit, you don't notice. That's the point. <laughs> Always do an accent mildly is right. the way it works for me. And I have a good ear for them. So so, so far, so good for me, but right. it was lightning. I did, was not conscious by the time we were on set at all of how I was going to sound because if I was, it would have just ruined yeah, the yeah. experience. Well, so here's the other part of that question, I guess, is it's not news to anyone that David does a lot of takes. I mean, this is something there and it's worked for great directors forever. I mean, back in the era that you guys are portraying that was William Wyler. And then every generation since there's somebody that does it. And I wonder if what your understanding is of why David likes to do so many takes. I don't know if there was a specific scene that you were referencing when you were talking about, there was one that might've taken a week and 200 takes to get. I would love to know which one that is, but just what's your understanding? Like I would be saying if I'm not an actor, but I would think I would like, what are you looking for after them? What is something going to be different? How many ways can you do something? So was it something that you, how did you respond to it? And what did you make of it? I always got to a point where, because I'd never done, I mean, it's, it's like theater. I'd never got, I'd, I'd gotten to a point at, at times where I was just like, I really don't know what else I can do. I hate myself now, <laughs> but that doesn't stop you or him, what he's doing, it is math. It, it, to, to put it more simply, you got a lot of people in the scene. You got a lot of people saying different things in the scene. It's a, uh, you got a big set piece. People are in different positions. That means you have that many more camera angles and that many more setups. And if each setup is, you know, thir- thir- 20, 30, 40, whatever it takes, you just got to factor that in and you're in four days into it. And it's kind of luxurious to have that much space and time to work on something. And I realized that it really works for me. I do get tired. Of course I get tired. Everybody would get tired. But to know my lines that well and to really feel like I'm sitting comfortably into this role, it's 
it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen because sometimes you just want to go home. And sometimes you only have an hour for a scene and sometimes you're losing the daylight. And so, you know, all these elements to movie making that don't really work for the actor so much as just the movie as a, as a whole and all the pieces, the moving pieces. And it just, it sucks because budgets are lower and, you know, we run out of time. And here we just didn't ever run out of time. It didn't feel like we did. The scenes where you guys were doing the most takes, are, are you saying those are the ones where it's like, mayor and everybody sitting there in San Simeon is that or were were there other ones where it was just you know the most which was the most takes oh god I don't know I don't think I was there for that I feel like oh no maybe okay here's here's what I I'm for I'm certain this was the most takes because we had to reshoot it so you're maybe okay. eight days all together we shot the one yep. where the scene where I meet Mank and we meet Hurst. We the audience meets Marion and Hurst. Yeah. And El LB and um Thal or uh, Irving Thalberg yeah. are sitting. Yeah, that's we reshot that. And by the way, the reshoot is just so much more glorious in in how I felt as Marion, as Amanda, even though I was pregnant at that point. Oh my gosh. Well, and I guess you you had some weird things with this movie because the looping and stuff was post pandemic right so that that would also be probably a unusual way to have to do a movie it's it's more like that was the most similar to the experience pre-covid than anything else the eight being doing adr at home is, is is nothing it's it's the way it should be done from now from now on because mm -hmm. the technology is definitely there for yeah it. yeah all right so last question is you know, this movie hits Netflix on Friday, I believe. Um, it's already in some theaters. Unfortunately, we don't have any theaters where we are. I don't know about you, but um, just as you've started getting the feedback, we talked a little bit about how positive it's been for the movie, for the performance, that aspect of things. And then what, what you've made of that and what you now hope to do, if you think about this as sort of like currency in the sense that there's now people that are, more people want to get aboard the Amanda Seyfried train right now. What do you want to do with that? What's the next, what's the next move? I think this is my next move is going to be the most deliberate move I ever made. And I am really hoping that I'm considered first or second for things that I never was considered for before in, in, in that, I, you know, there are directors that I've been dying to work with for years and, never got the opportunity because they have their favorite collection of actresses, which I get, of course, there's some loyalty and there's trust. And that's how I would be. But now I'm, I'm, I'm that much closer to being in the handful. And I feel like, okay, I'm in David's handful now. Who, who, who else can, can, uh, does, who trusts me now? Or who, who's, who wants to see me play this role? I just, I, I never want to stop working and I think I could I could afford to do less in terms of just have, having having get a full family at this point. <laughs> I don't want to work all the time, but when I work, I want it to be fucking good, mm -hmm. and I want it to be like an experience I had on Mank. That's what I want to do. I want to work with a director who knows exactly what they want, and and I never have to worry about anything but my performance. I just it's gold. And I totally, totally just, I feel like a kid now. I feel like 
it's the best I've ever felt. It's the most solid I've ever felt. Um, It's the most thrilling experience. The most thrilled I've ever been, you know, to, I, I got this opportunity. I showed up. The movie's amazing. I feel good about my performance. People like it too. It just doesn't always add up to that. And this one does, yeah. and I'm I'm capitalizing on it. I'm going to do everything I need to do to get this movie seen by as many people as possible. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to sit back and just enjoy it because uh, you never know what's going to happen. But I do I I do feel like um I have a better chance of getting those opportunities now. I want those opportunities. Good. <laughs> Well, and I want to see I, again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's good to know. People, it's good. You put this out there. You never know who's listening. And uh, Donna Langley, so, is, are you listening? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about um, Mark Platt? Are you listening? I'm Glinda and Wicked, all right? Right. So uh, let me let you go do your thing. But thank you so much for this and enjoy the, enjoy the ride. Bye, see guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.